You're listening to 3CR Radio. And
was Aretha Franklin. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are veteran gay journalist and activist Adam Carr and UK artist Ben Newton joins us. 3CR. Well, Adam Carr was a founding member of Melbourne's Gay and Lesbian Press and later the Victorian AIDS Council Gay Men's Health Centre. And I spoke with him this week. We're going back quite some way now. This is 1979. There wasn't any gay media in Melbourne at that time. There was only Campaign magazine in Sydney, which we Melbourne activists thought was terribly frivolous and full of silly gossip and stuff. So at the Fifth National Homosexual Conference, which was an annual activists conference that that year was held in Melbourne, uh, there was a meeting convened of people who thought it would be a good idea to start uh, a new serious gay activist type publication based in Melbourne. Uh, That was in uh, June, I think, of 79, and we launched Gay Community News, very imaginative title, later that year. So it was was quite an exciting venture, yes. And what were the political issues of the time the community was concerned with? Well, this was before um, homosexual law reform in Victoria, so it was still illegal uh, for uh, gay men to be having sex. Um, There was quite widespread still occupational discrimination, housing discrimination, bad treatment by police. There were a number of, of issues that, that, were, that, were, that were running at that time that were quite important and that we felt weren't, being, weren't getting any, any coverage. And, the, and we also wanted the magazine to be not just reporting the news but helping to make it. We wanted to be an activist publication that actually served to help you know, mobilise the community to make it into a real activist community and, and, and tackle, these, tackle these issues. And I guess the community really embraced it. Well, up to a point, yes. Uh, we were fairly sort of serious left-wing activists. Quite a lot of people in the community didn't like what we were producing. Um, we had a lot of trouble with, with the business community, for example. We didn't carry any advertising at first because we thought advertising was, you know, commercialism and stuff. We didn't really think about how the magazine was going to be commercially viable with no advertising. But eventually we had to deal with, with some, of those, some of those questions. Um, and we began to run somewhat broader kind of content. But it was never, GCN was never a, a commercially viable um, enterprise. It, it, it limped along for several years, um, losing money, which we didn't, didn't have, until eventually we, we came to a crunch point about three years later where we had to fundamentally rethink the whole thing. And, of course, at that time, three years later, HIV AIDS had emerged as well. Well, it, it, it came along at, at that exact moment when, when GCN was no longer viable, um, now, had HIV/AIDS not happened, we might have just said, "Oh well," you know, and let it, let it fold. But we felt in that emerging crisis that it was a duty to keep a gay media in Melbourne going because it was carrying, you know, important information that people needed to have. So we had a bit of a crisis at the end of '82, uh, leading into '83, uh, and basically we then relaunched the publication as Outrage Magazine, which was explicitly a much broader-based magazine. It was still intended to be for both men and women, although that was increasingly a problem because the kinds of content that the gay male community were wanting to read about in the midst of the AIDS epidemic was, was, had changed pretty radically. But we survived for a year or so with that model, and that was a much more, a much more upmarket, sophisticated, you know, we had colour printing and, and what have you. Um, we did succeed in getting some money from uh, the Victorian government from the, a, a thing called the Community De- uh, Cooperative Development Program. We turned ourselves into a cooperative, Gay Publications Cooperative, and we applied for a grant uh, to employ uh, staff and to rent an office um, as a cooperative, which we got. 
And so Danny Videz was then appointed as editor and I was appointed as assistant editor. And uh, Merrilee Moss was the other assistant editor. So we had a staff of three and we had an office in um, John Curtin House in the city. So it was a much more sophisticated enterprise. It still didn't make money. Um, we did carry advertising, but it was never, it still limped along economically, but it survived. And, uh, and during that period, 83, 84, 5, um, we were, in fact, probably the most important news outlet on the HIV AIDS epidemic in Australia. Our circulation did go up because of that. So it was, uh, in, a, in, in a purely commercial sense, it was a good thing. But of course, it, it also, uh, some terrible things were happening in the community as well. What were some of those memorable stories that you worked on? Well, we we broke uh, most of the of the of the news about the developing AIDS crisis as it happened, usually well in advance of what the mainstream media was doing, because we were getting we had access to overseas overseas media. I mean, in days obviously before the internet, we had to wait for things to arrive by post, but we were still getting uh, the New York Native and the Bay Area Reporter and other gay press from the United States who were carrying what was going on with AIDS there, and we could see what was coming. We could see it was going to come to Australia. And we, we ran a lot, a lot of quite important news on that. Um, there was also the ongoing, ongoing campaigns for, for gay law reform. We'd achieved it in Victoria in 1981, but it took a long struggle to get it in New South Wales, in Queensland, in Tasmania. So GCN, GCN had been a specifically Melbourne paper, whereas Outrage was supposed to be a national magazine. So we broadened our coverage interstate, although we, were, we never really became a major force in the Sydney in the Sydney community. They still preferred to read the local local press, which is not surprising. But we certainly did get a reputation for serious news coverage and serious political commentary, for which there was a market, although it wasn't really a big enough market for us to ever be really commercially successful. But um, in in the midst of that crisis, we thought it was you know important that we that we carry on. So we did. What was it like for you as a journalist reporting on uh, so many people dying in the community? Yeah, it was very tough, um, not just for me, but for everybody, because we we're also, of course, also involved in, in the activist response as well. When the Victorian AIDS Council was set up uh, in 83 and 84, I was, I was heavily involved in that. I was doing media work for VAC and sort of swapping backwards and forwards between my journalist hat and my activist hat, which wasn't very good practice, but, but it was necessary at the time. I mean, sometimes I wrote articles about myself in the third person because it was just inevitable that we would do that. But it was, it was very stressful because this crisis was going on around us. It was affecting everybody we knew. People, people were getting sick. People were going, and at this point, of course, nobody knew who had the virus. This was before the antibody test was available and there was no treatment for AIDS. People got sick, they went in a hospital and they died. Um, so it was a very, very rough period. Um, in some ways, being a journalist gave you some sense of control, though. I, I found you know, doing, doing both activist work and, and journalistic work sort of therapeutic in a sense. It was a good way. It was better than sitting around doing nothing and, and fretting about what was happening. So what were some of the challenges in setting up a Victorian AIDS Council Gay Men's Health Centre? I imagine getting government funding was a real challenge. It was at first, yes, um, because the state government took some persuading, firstly, that this was a real crisis, and secondly, that the correct way to respond to it was to give money to you know, a, a self-appointed committee of, of homosexuals who <laughs> said, give us the money and we'll do the job. But they did come around because it became obvious, particularly after Neil Blewett, the federal health minister, uh, went to the United States and saw what was happening in San Francisco and in New York and came back and said, this is a real crisis. Um, thousands of people are going to die unless we get a, a grip on what is happening. And the best way to do it is to support the communities that are most directly affected and let them do the prevention education work. 
And when they saw the kind of material that we needed to produce, you know, material that talked about condoms and talked about anal sex and talked about needle sharing and talked about subjects that they found they didn't know anything about and didn't like the look of, it was much better to give us the money and let us produce this material than have the government try and do it themselves. And they did, did eventually, the Victorian government, when David White was health minister, um, did accept that model and we were directly funded, the Victorian AIDS Council was directly funded to do that educational work and eventually also the Gay Men's Health Centre was set up as a vehicle to allow us to offer you know, counselling and clinical services directly to the gay community uh, through our own facilities, which was a different model to one they pursued in Sydney when they set up the Albion Street Centre as a government clinic, which we didn't want. We didn't want a government clinic in Victoria, we wanted to run it ourselves. And it also meant that the, both the government and the AIDS Council spent quite a lot of money advertising in the gay media. So that made Outrage's finances considerably better. So Outrage was able to carry on. Um, and we tried not to let AIDS completely take it over, but it was just always a struggle because there was just so much going on. We, we did try and keep some, some other issues running, but uh, it was, it was a, a very challenging time for all of us in every sense. So tell us about some of the safe sex campaigns that the AIDS Council developed in those early days. Can you remember some of them? Oh, yes, yes. Um, well, we had, a, we had a particularly good educational team, Ron Thiel, Bruce Parnell, Marcus O'Donnell, other people, all of whom are still around. Um, and and uh, some of the lessons that we learned then are now having to be relearned now because of the COVID epidemic. It's not, it's not the same, but there are some similarities and some of these same lessons are having to be learned over again. We needed to talk to people in their own language. We needed to speak to gay men in language that they understood and, and pitch the material so that it wasn't the government telling them what to do, but it was a community-based response. This is what we have decided as a community that we need to do, which is quite a different approach from the sort of traditional public health approach that some of the doctors wanted to use, which was to test everybody and quarantine people and close venues and order people not to do this and not to do that. And we argued that would not work. Um, this was a community that was used to being stigmatised that was used to being semi-underground, they would simply not respond to orders from government about what we needed to do. The messages had to be seen to be coming from the community itself. Um, and that was why it was important that they fund us. And we promoted things like condom use for, 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 for anal sex. We, we, we promoted, um, we used all the gay sex venues, you know, the saunas and the sex clubs. We, we held seminars, we held meetings, we held demonstrations of how to put on a condom, which, you know, government doctors could never have done. It was only us that could do that. We had the Safe Sex Sisters, which was a group of gay men who got around in sort of nurse drag um, and handed out condoms and were very funny and put on shows. And so we used all the existing vehicles, all the existing you know, channels of the gay community, gay male community, to get this message out, um, not just to self-identified gay men, but also men who had sex with men who didn't identify as gay. So we had a big Beats program. We put up stickers and messages and phone numbers in all the Beats around Melbourne so that people men who were looking for sex but who didn't think of themselves as gay, who didn't think of themselves as part of the gay community, would still be getting these messages. And the result was that we drove down the number of, of, um, of, of HIV infections pretty radically um, and no doubt at all that, that we saved thousands of lives through, through that campaign. And it was, a, it was a very successful campaign which was widely copied, copied in other parts of the world. 3CR You're listening to an interview with veteran gay journalist and community activist Adam Carr on 3CR's In Your Face. What were some of the challenges you faced with the venues uh, in terms of uh, getting safe sex information disseminated to the community? Was there any resistance from the venues? Oh, there, there were some. I mean, some, some people didn't want to, um, you know, have their venues cluttered up with gloomy stuff about disease and, and stuff. But 
they were aware of the threats coming from some of the doctors that, you know, all these places should be closed. You know, they wanted to ban the Mardi Gras, for example. David Pennington, Professor Pennington, um, said at one point Mardi Gras shouldn't happen. Um, there were certainly suggestions that sort of sex venues like saunas should be closed, as they were in some places. They were in, in, in San Francisco. The saunas were closed by Diane Feinstein when she was mayor. There was huge controversy about that. And uh, we argued that, no, they should be kept open and used as centres for, for promoting education. And we had to sell that. We had to say to the venue owners, look, if you don't, if you don't cooperate with this, then you will get closed down. There's no, you know, and we won't be able to stop that. We have to be able to say to the government, yes, the venues are cooperating. We are, we are reaching a population of men who have sex with other men who we could not reach otherwise through these venues. So you need to keep them open and you used to, need to use them as places where we can conduct education. And that argument worked. And it was true. I mean, it wasn't something we just made up. It was, in fact, true. Um, but we did succeed in persuading the venue owners that this was, it was in their own interest to cooperate. You mentioned before some of the parallels between the HIV AIDS epidemic in the early 80s and the COVID-19 pandemic today. Can you talk about that a bit more? Well, they're not exact parallels because HIV was not, in fact, fortunately for everybody, not a very infectious virus. There were only very specific ways you could catch HIV um, through unsafe sex or needle sharing, whereas COVID is a very easily a very highly infectious virus. You can catch it, you know, just by being in proximity to somebody. On the other hand, HIV before we had any treatments, was a highly lethal virus. If you caught it, you were probably going to die eventually. Whereas COVID only kills, you know, we don't know what the percentage is yet, but it's only a small percentage of people who, who, who get it, who get it, uh, die from it. But there are parallels because we're seeing the same phenomenon. We're seeing the same phenomenon of denialism, um, of, you know, this is all, all a hoax, this is all an exaggeration. Um, it's only other people that get infected. In, in the 1980s, they would say, oh, it's only gay men and sex workers and junkies who get infected, so the rest of us needn't bother about it. Now people are saying, oh, it's only very old people who get it. Or if, you get it, if you're young and you get it, it won't do you any harm. Now, that's not true. We're seeing lots of examples of people in their 20s and 30s who are getting very serious illness as a result of COVID. Some of them are dying. Some of them are left with long-term chronic illness. So it is a real issue. So we have some of the same issues of public denial and cut through, the need to cut through that denial with, with properly focused educational materials that explain to people clearly what the problem is and encourage behaviour change. In the 80s, it was only behaviour change for fairly small minorities of people. We had to encourage gay men to use condoms, to stop having unsafe forms of sex, to stop sharing needles if that's what they were doing. Um, now we have to persuade the whole community you know, to wear a mask and not, not, to, not to do the, the dangerous things we know um, are spreading this virus. But that's only for a short period of time. Um, this behaviour change we were asking of gay men was was permanent. Um, you know, it's now 40, 40 years we've had um, safe sex guidelines for for gay men. Um, we do have now effective treatments for HIV, and we have we have prophyl, you know prep and and the rest of it. But where we hope for COVID, it will not be a lifetime. We hope that we can defeat COVID, but we don't know that yet. Um, so, and many of the same people who were around then, you know, people like Bill Botel. Um, are still active in the public sphere talk, talking about COVID. And Peter Piot, who was very active at, at the WHO dealing with um, HIV, has himself had COVID and recovered from it, nearly died from it. Um, and um, he's been a very loud voice on this. Uh, uh, Michael Bartos, who was president of the VOC, is now very active on, in, in work on, on the COVID crisis. So there are some, there are some overlaps and some, some parallels, yes, despite the differences. Of course, your journalistic career at Melbourne's Queer Press uh, went right until the early 2000s. 
I think it was. Well, I did, I did, I did leave for a while, um, but then I came back when Bill. After you, you, I don't know if any of your listeners now remember the satellite disaster um, when uh, there was a Sydney property developer who bought up most of the gay press in order to promote his real estate empire, and then proceeded to go broke uh, and drag the whole thing down with him. That's when outrage. This was in two thousand. That was when outrage stopped publication. It was when. Um, Several other gay uh, capital Q in Sydney. Several others went down the tube um, at that time. Bill Calder then restarted a gay press in Melbourne when he started um, B News. Um, this was in two thousand one, and he asked me to come back and be news editor for 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 B News. So I had another three or four years of journalism uh, from two thousand one through till two thousand four, I think. Um, by that stage, the AIDS epidemic had receded in importance somewhat. It was still around, but it was no longer sort of front page screaming news all the time because we had by that stage fairly effective treatments. Um, so people were people were living with HIV. We now had a large community of people living with HIV, not just dying from it as we had in the early 80s. Um, so the, the, the quality of the, the, the quality of the news we were publishing was 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 pretty different. Um, so and I did that through till I think the end of 2003 when I went off and decided having um, having got a bit long in the tooth it was time to go and do something else for a while. You covered so many stories. For you, what was the most challenging story that you wrote and why? Um, well, yes. In relation to HIV-AIDS, without doubt, the most difficult thing that I wrote was after I had a long discussion with Professor Ian Gust, who was the um, who succeeded Pennington as the chief health advisor, and he was a virologist based at Fairfield. And I had several meetings with him in which he persuaded me or you know, demonstrated to me from the science that unless there was an effective treatment, everybody who got HIV would eventually die, which wasn't a new idea. It had been suggested before, but it was there was a lot of resistance to that idea, obviously. Um, no one wanted to believe that it was true because we had a large community of people who had HIV and didn't want to be told they were all going to die. But it was a fact, I'm afraid. And I wrote an article basically setting out those facts, which made me quite unpopular. And a lot of people got stuck into me saying, even if it's true, you shouldn't say it because it depresses and upsets people, and which I'm sure it did. But I think a journalist has a duty to tell people what the truth is, even if it's unpleasant. What other stories spring to mind? I mean, there's so many you've worked on. Uh, well, yes. Um, outside, outside the AIDS sphere, um, which you know really dominated most of my time um, from 83 through till through till at least well into the mid-90s. Um, law reform in Tasmania was a big one. Tasmania was the last state to, to decriminalise uh, sex between men, and it was a very long struggle. Um, as you remember, Rodney Croom and Nick Turnan, who were the two principal activists in Tasmania, we had a, we had a slightly rocky relationship with them. They didn't approve of everything we wrote. Um, but we, we you know, gave what support we could to, uh, to, to their cause, and I thought that was very important, and we finally had, had a great victory. Also, the campaign to lift the ban against gay men and lesbians serving openly in the Defence Force at the time of the Keating government when Robert Ray was Defence Minister. That was, um, that, and, we, and we won that one too eventually. Um, Keating was eventually persuaded that, that uh, you know, the, the military wouldn't mutiny if, um, if, we, uh, if that reform was made, and it was made. And, of course, now, you know, we have a big ADF contingent that takes marches in the, in the Mardi Gras parade, and it's, and it's as if they'd never had, a, never had an issue with it at all. Um, people think there's no progress in the world, but when you look back over 20, 30 years and you see how things have changed, um, you know, I walked past Paran Police Station yesterday, and they were flying a rainbow flag out the front. When you consider how police used to treat gay men and lesbians in Melbourne 30 years ago, um, it's, there's been enormous cultural change, and the gay media played an important role in, um, in bringing that about. 
you, of course, covered ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. What were some of the stories, the most memorable stories you covered in relation to them? Well, yeah, ACT UP. Um, I mean, I went to the first ACT UP, first ACT UP meeting. Um, ACT UP were really useful because they could apply pressure in a way that the AIDS Council's, you know, being a respectable government-funded bodies couldn't do. They could stage a demo, demo outside the minister's office or, or you know, make, make nuisances of themselves. Um, and most of what they did was 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 um, was very admirable. They did a few things that we didn't, or I didn't think were good ideas, like vandalising the floral clock, for example. Um, but you know, their view was, you know, people are dying. We need we need we need more progress, particularly on getting treatments approved. There was a big blockage. There was a body called the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which was taking a very long time to give approval to drugs, which had already been shown overseas to be effective. That was the problem but they wouldn't license them in Australia without them going through a whole long regulatory process. And ACT UP played a very important role in, in un, unjamming that, that blog jam by, by direct action protests, but also, you know, good, good argument based on science that we don't need to redo all this work that's already been done in the US or in the EU um, to show that these drugs are safe. And there was eventually an inquiry set up under Professor Peter Bohm, which finally did recommend that the TGA be reformed and the AIDS drugs be fast streamed, and that was largely due to pressure, partly from the AIDS councils and part, but but considerably considerably because of the pressure um, from ACT UP. Adam Carr, thank you so much for talking to me today on Three CR. You're very welcome, James. Three
that was Sarah McLaughlin with Hold On. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, Ben Uden is a queer artist from Liverpool in the UK, and Ben begins our interview by describing his connection to the leather community and how it influences his art. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's been a long process, really. It probably started way back when I was uh, a sort of a young teenager, sort of 14, 15, and, and, and two sort of things happened to me at a, a similar time. Like, I guess, like a lot of teenagers, a lot of, a lot of young lads growing up, I sort of discovered um, sort of the punk and metal scene uh, in the city where I grew up. And, and obviously, you know, it's not worth turning up if you haven't got Doc Martin boots and a leather biker jacket. So, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that was one of the first things. And then at a similar time, I discovered um, Tom of Finland. And these two things sort of fused in my imagination, I guess. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't say at, at seven, 16, 17, I was a, a fully fledged, uh, you know, fetish guy or anything like that. It was a, it was a slower process than that. But the first thing that attracted me was the aesthetic. And then from that, I, I developed the sort of the, I guess you could say sort of a deeper relationship with the, the feel of the leather and, and, and all of that kind of stuff and the fetishized, sexualized element of it. I think I think it was a, a sort of a natural and organic progression for it to be part of the uh, part of my work as well. I mean, I've always I always say this to people, and it's absolutely true that I I think all children are um, when you're young, you're creative, and we all draw, and you probably did yourself. And um, a lot of people get to a certain age and they become sort of self conscious about their creativity and their and their, and they think you know they worry they they concern themselves too much with oh you know it doesn't look any good or it's not going to be acceptable or uh, all of this kind of thing and and I was very lucky I never really had that I just I drew from as long as I can remember and nobody ever told me to stop and so like I said it was a, it was probably a, a as I as I explored my sexuality and relationship with leather it was it was quite an organic thing for it to become part of, part of my work and. And I suppose at the moment, very much the focus of it. Tell us about your life in, in Liverpool and your life in Liverpool's leather community. Well, Liverpool has it has quite a small leather community. There's a few of us here. But over in um, Manchester, which is about, it's only about 30 miles away, the sort of a neighbouring city, slightly bigger city. There's much more of an active scene there. There's a, there's a uh, I mean, you probably know, Man- Manchester's a real... Uh, a really big centre for for a wide variety of gay and queer communities, and it's it's a geographically it's sort of a magnet from from smaller towns and neighbouring cities and things like that. So um, I get involved in a lot of stuff there. And then I'm, I mean I'm very lucky. Me and my husband travel a lot, and we go to Amsterdam and Berlin, and um, and obviously there's a, there's a huge scene there. The leather community in Manchester must have an incredible connection to the working class. There must be a real working class kind of, you know, uh, feel to to the leather community there. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously i uh, uh, I consider myself working class, uh, and I think I think I think I think that really is one of the main um, things that has informed my aesthetic sense, you might say, the sort of the, the, um, the over the top and the kitsch and the things like that have always been a focus, um, around me in terms of the interiors I grew up in or the people that I knew and, uh, whether conscious or subconscious, it's always been an influence, I guess. But yeah, I, I think, I think that is fair to say. Uh, and Liverpool, Liverpool itself is a very working class city as well. 
I've been looking through your paintings and uh, I want to ask you about a couple of them. Yeah, Talk of course. about your, 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 your painting family. That was a piece I did um, after uh, I did a residency at the Tom of Fudnam Foundation over in Los Angeles. And um, I was over there for three months and um, obviously met lots of members of the of the LA leather community, which is uh, vast in comparison to anything over here. And um, that particular piece was, I was introduced at a party to three guys who were sort of in a thruple together. There was um, two guys who'd been in a relationship for a long time together and they, they brought in a third um, younger guy into their relationship. And um, I got, they, I was introduced to them at a party and obviously ex, I explained why I was there and what I was hoping to achieve. And, and that was to meet guys in the leather community and sort of portray them in my, in my way. And I, 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 I was drawn to them because what, one of the things that's really, to me is really interesting about queer people is that we, we sort of construct our own families that don't necessarily adhere to, to heteronormative ideas of what family is. And that might be, in a, in a sort of a three-way relationship like that, where there's a sexual element and a fetish element and things like that. Or it may be, um, I think one of the, one of the things that, that, that most gay and queer and, and uh, people have in common is that we, um, we're very adept at sort of constructing our own tight-knit families around us through our friends. You know, we build our own families and sometimes that's born out of, um, adversity from your birth family and sometimes it's it's just a an instinctive way of connecting with like-minded people i guess but but that was what i was trying to show with that piece that this this um i thought this these three guys had this um had a fascinating dynamic and i thought that was something that was worth celebrating and worth uh, worth portraying tell us about the tom of finland foundation in la it sounds amazing yeah it's i mean it, it it's incredible like i said i was lucky enough to go over there for 3 months as um, artists in residence and they have this program where uh, they invite people go from all over the world all over the states all over europe and uh, other parts of the world too they they give them studio space and allow them to to focus entirely on their own creativity for a three-month period uh, i mean the place itself is amazing it's an old sort of um it's it's a, it's a sort of archetypal American house that you've seen in all the movies, you know, with the front porch and the the you know the clapperboard sort of American house. It was built in around I think it was early early twentieth century, so, so just before the First World War, I think it was built, and uh, it, it just has an incredible atmosphere because it's part museum, it's part archive, it's but it's also a home. There are people, you know, there are there are four or five guys that live there permanently. So you're very conscious of the fact that you're you're staying in someone's home, and it's it's far more than just a you know just a rather dry museum that presents artwork. And their their sort of mission they were set up um, before Tom died. Him and um, Dirk Dana, who is the the president of the foundation, decided to set it up. And it, um, the idea behind it was twofold. First of all, it was to um, the idea was to promote and preserve Tom's work and bring it to as wide an audience as possible. And second of all, it was to help encourage and promote erotic gay art as well in in contemporary living artists. And that's 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 what they do extremely successfully, in my view. They have a huge array of um, artists who've been connected there from people like myself who make visual art and photographers, performance artists, musicians all kinds of things. 
but yeah, that, that I mean, the, it's it's hard to describe really. The, the best way I can describe it to you is I don't, I don't know if you've ever been to LA. I'd never been before when I went, so I didn't quite know what to expect. And of course, everybody, you know, people you know say things to you like uh, people said to me, "Oh, you know, uh, you know, you need to drive. You couldn't possibly be there without a car." And I don't drive, and uh, uh, found that was absolute nonsense. I got the bus everywhere, which which I do wherever I go in the world. And I mean, I'm not saying it it didn't have its uh, let's call them interesting moments, uh, but you know, it's it, I found that really fascinating as well. But the house itself, it 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 somehow feels um, extremely separate to the rest of Los Angeles. It feels like an oasis, or like a it sounds a bit corny to say, but like an, an eye of a storm. And yet, at the same time, I can't imagine it existing in any other city in the world. Tell us about Tom of Finland and his incredible legacy in art. Well, for, I mean, for those who don't know, Tom was um, Tom of Finland is a pseudonym, and he started making erotic gay art centers around uniforms and leather, and and certain themes that recur through his work particularly showing sort of sexual behaviour in in the outdoors and in woodlands and in parks and things like that. And he started making work. Um, I mean, I, I, he's always drawn as a child and things like that, but his erotic work started really at the end of the Second World War. He was in the Finnish army during the war and he started making erotic work then. And he, he, he although his work is a sort of a fantasy vision of the male form, a lot of the... Um, the scenarios and the stories were, were things that he experienced and he particularly has a fondness for, obviously, you know, the end of the war, cities like Helsinki were full of soldiers from, from both sides. It was the, 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 the Russian army was there and, of course, the German army had occupied parts of Finland. Um, so consequently, the after dark, the parks of Helsinki were uh, groaning under the weight of uh, guys in uniform wanting to have a bit of fun, shall we say. Uh, and and it really started from there. But he 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 started making the work. Obviously, it was it was you know homosexuality was illegal, and uh, and certainly the type of work that he was making was. So he started through like a, a sort of a contact magazine, mailing images or cop- photographs of images to to uh, to clients all over the world, and they had to be a very specific size so that. Um, they wouldn't arouse suspicion through the airmail system when they were flying out of the country and things like that. Um, and he and he, he did that for many years, and he was his work was published in magazines and journals like Physique Pictorial, which was a which was an American publication, and that sort of began his connection with America. And he eventually went over to to Los Angeles to visit. I think it would have been sometime. You'll have to forgive me, my memory for dates isn't great, but it was it was it was mid nineteen seventies. So he'd already been working for many years in Europe, and he eventually ended up meeting Dirk, who was like I say, was the the, the co-founder of the foundation, who'd come across his work in a leather bar. Pretty sure it was in LA, and he invited him to come and stay in the house where the foundation is now. And it had started really as a, um, it was kind of a. I guess it was a sort of a commune for leathermen, you could say. And they they lived in the, it's a great big place. And when I was there, there was it still retained the same sort of atmosphere, I guess, that it would have done in those days. And there was a, an official population of of four or five of us, but then of course a transient population of thousands of guys that drift through at various times of the day and night. So it was extremely stimulating and inspirational for lots of reasons. Um, but really, the the 
what what they embody and the essence of Tom's work is that it speaks of um I think it speaks of freedom and liberation and um and celebrates a sort of idealized form of masculinity. And I think I think that's still hugely relevant today as well. I think that um for me and I don't know whether you agree or not, but I think that um the idea of masculinity isn't necessarily a negative thing. I think that toxic masculinity is a is a different thing. And I think that can be quite prevalent in queer culture and straight culture as well. And to me the tox the toxicity is when a person is trying to sort of portray themselves as masculine and they, they feel the need to deride somebody who doesn't necessarily identify with that. And I think that's that's the negative aspect of it. But presenting a masculine image in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a, it's a, it's a healthy thing. You're listening to an interview with Ben Newton on 3CRs in your face. You've also had your work featured in Madonna's Rebel Heart tour. Tell us about that work. Yes, I did. That that was great. Yeah, I, I didn't get I didn't get to meet Madonna, unfortunately, but uh, <laughs> it was that was a nice experience. They, um, I forget what it was. That was a few years ago now. I think was it 2017, something like that. I forget now. And there was just a, a that was an open competition asking for people to submit images of her to be to be used in the tour so I I, I, I didn't know about it my husband Jonathan is, is a massive Madonna fan and, and he heard about it and he said to me you should you should you should submit something it'd be great so I did and then months and months went by and I'd forgotten all about it to be honest and hadn't heard anything so assumed that you know it hadn't been accepted or whatever and then I was shaken awake one morning at about seven o'clock in the morning by Jonathan who'd been speaking to one of his uh, Madonna fan friends uh, who'd been to the first Rebel Heart concert with which I guess it was in the States I don't know and he'd messaged him in the middle of the night saying I've just seen Ben's artwork on the tour it's amazing and that was the first I heard of it <laughs> uh, but but that was great and it also led to um, obviously the piece in the show was was it was a huge projection of a much smaller painter uh, but the painting itself ended up in a large um, uh, group show in Turin in Italy, which was great. So it was shown alongside the originals of, of lots of the other work, which was featured. So, yeah, that was that was that was nice. So was the painting that was featured your painting Madonna made me gay? Uh, no, no, that was uh, no. The, the painting that was featured was was a portrait of her and it was a, a recreation in glitter of uh, uh, the album cover to the Rebel Heart album. Uh, Madonna Made Me Gay was a piece I made of a, a friend of mine called Martin who uh, he's he's uh, in the leather community as well, but he, he's also a, a, a massive Madonna fan and has been since he was since since he can remember. I think he told me that he first saw her in in concert in about 1987 as a young lad and has, has been a devotee ever since. Uh, so we always joke that, that it's her fault he became a a raving homo. Another show that really attracted my interest was your show Filth, which was a huge success. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. That was that sort of followed on from um, the residency. So, I, so I finished the residency in March of eighteen. Uh, at, at the end of the residency in LA, I did a, a solo show there, and that was six portraits that I made during the, the three months that I was there. So, obviously, when I, when I got back home to uh, Liverpool. I had so much material that I hadn't had a chance to use, uh, and I'd also I'd started 
collaborating with um, guys in the fetish community more locally. And so I just I just sort of threw myself into creating a new body of work. And it was kind of the an opportunity to to use stuff that, that I'd, you know, just that I just ran out of time, basically. Three months sounds like a long time. But as, you know, I hope, I hope people can see if they look at my work, they do take quite a while to construct. So tell us about some of the images in film. They're all of real people and they all sort of explore the individual's relationship with, I mean, it's, it centers around leather. There is, a, there is a little bit of rubber in there as well and uh, some pop stuff for it, but it, the, the main focus is leather. And I tried to sort of, use the images of each of the people featured in it to show their their own sort of personal relationship with leather. So some of, some of them are more explicit than others. There's sort of a slightly different narrative to each one, but they, they all have this common theme of a, an exploration of the individual's sexuality. How would you describe your personal relationship with leather? That's a hard question, really, and I do, I, I do get asked that a lot. And the, the only... Uh, I always sort of struggle to answer it, to be honest with you. Well, I think, I think for me, it's, um, I would say it's instinctive. It's something, it's something that I've, I've had a, a, a long relationship with since I was, like I said, like I was saying before, since I was a young teenager. Um, and it's something that I suppose it must be important to me because it's something that I wear every, almost every single day. Because obviously, uh, being an artist, I haven't got a real job, so I don't have to wear a suit and tie and go on a train to an office or anything like that. So I can, people, you know, uh, <laughs> I can sort of get away with dressing however I like, really. In fact, I think people expect it now. I, th- I think for, for, for most people, how we, how we, how we dress is often uh, an extension of how we feel and how we wish to, you know, so it's, it's a form of self-expression. Um, and I know, um, like I say, a lot of people, we, we, depending on what your, what your day-to-day life is. We, we, I suppose certain people have to conform to a certain way of dressing. You know, if, if I had a day job where I was a primary school teacher, it wouldn't really, it wouldn't necessarily be appropriate to go in in a pair of chaps and a leather jacket, would it? You know, that wouldn't necessarily be acceptable. But, but because I'm an artist, I could wear that and nobody would turn a hair, you know. Tell us how the COVID pandemic has been impacting on your work and your expression of, of, of artistry. Yeah, I mean that that's a good question. It's it's funny because um creatively it's actually been um it's actually been really interesting. I have done quite a lot of work. While we had the 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 sort of the strip lockdown here, I was able to um I mean it was disappointing on one level because I'd had plans to meet and photograph some new guys and uh and and, and other people as well and I had two or three ideas for projects that I wanted to get off the ground that really involved working with new people. So obviously that had to be that's had to be paused and is still on pause. But but what it did do was um give me a chance to 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 re-examine some of the photographs I'd already taken and, and reuse them and um and it and it has been interesting work wise. I think some of the stuff I've done is is beginning to take me in a slightly different direction. So that's that's been a positive. But obviously, the negative side of it is, um, like I say, I've not been able to make any new plans to to actually put any exhibitions together, and I try and do um, a physical exhibition at least once a year, if I can, or sometimes more, if possible, um, because obviously that's how I make a living. And there's no, you know, I've I've been involved in things online, and I've I've given a couple of talks about my artwork online, and I've shown an, an online exhibition for. Um, Pride in London, uh, which is fantastic, but 
it's not really a substitute for a physical exhibition where you come into a space and you you interact with the artwork firsthand. You know, there is there isn't really a substitute for that. So that's been disappointing. You mentioned that you found your work going in a new direction. Tell us about that new direction. The best way I can describe it is um, a lot of the pieces I did in LA and then the stuff for Filth were um, sort of figures in isolation and in quite a, a just a, a, a coloured background. And what I've started to do now is to bring in more to bring in more context to the um, to the composition. So, for example, the, I'm just working. I'll be working on a piece later today that is um, a portrait of a leather guy I met um, over in LA. Because I, again, I, because I've not been able to photograph new people, it's been great to go back over photographs that I've taken in the past. Uh, and he was a guy who's a, he was he's a curator at the Thomas Finland Foundation, and uh, I've I've made a portrait of him in his full leather, smoking a cigar. But it's 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 sort of standing in front of like a like a, a gothic tracery window, um, so it really sort of anchors the figure in a in an environment that that hopefully adds something to it. Um, and then uh, I'm not long finished a piece that was two paintings of, um, uh, from a distance, they look like just ordinary sort of suburban houses. And then when you get close and look through the windows, you can see that there's there's some sort of leather orgy going on and that kind of thing. So that's, that's, that's very different to the work I've done before. I mean, obviously exploring similar themes, but in a, in a, in a different context. Ben Newton, I absolutely love your paintings. Thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Oh, that's my pleasure. Thank, thank you very much for asking me. I'm very flattered. Situation moving through the doorway of a nation. 
was Alison Moyet with Situation. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming becoming an increasingly important actor in the military-industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible, and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us, is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Taking us out is Tame Impala, Disciples. Cause I was... Born.